Welcome to My Favourite Beatles Song, the podcast where we celebrate the music of the Beatles with a distinguished guest. My name's Tim Tucker and today I'll be talking with Scott Rowley. Is that pronounced correct, by the way, Scott? Well, I say Rowley. Rowley, not talk- Rowley. Yeah, Rowley. Um, content Director of Future. Um, hi, Scott. I hope, you, I hope you keep all this in. I think I might have to. <laughs> Please don't change that beginning. <laughs> How and- are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Yeah, and thanks for doing this show with us. Um, Today you're going to be talking about I Am The Walrus. More on that soon. But first, how would you rate your kind of level of fandom for the Beatles? Are you a a casual listener or a mainlining Beatles every day? Where do you sit on that spectrum? I would would rate myself higher. I forget how you put it. You put this in an email and you said something like... (laughs) You know, you, you can't stand them. You'd prefer the Rolling Stones to... You've got yeah. everything, you know, Paul McCartney on green vinyl. We yeah, all stand yeah. together on green vinyl. Yeah. I think in that sort of one to ten scale, I'm maybe seven or eight. So more than casual. Oh. Mm. I do prefer the Rolling Stones. Yeah, <laughs> as yeah. you know, as we've discussed on many occasions. Yes, indeed. Uh, but it's a close run thing. I will mm. say that. And um, I don't think I listen to the Beatles every day. I definitely don't listen to the Beatles yeah. every day. And I have a kind of weird relationship with the Beatles and Beatles yeah. fandom and Beatles fans. And the whole, and you know, I'm just kind of skeptical about the canon of rock, I suppose, which might be weird for someone who was Ed's sort of classic rock for a long, for a decade. But yeah. I'm really skeptical about Ivory Towers and the idea of a canon of rock music and the reverential sort of respect mm. that the Beatles get that they mostly yeah, more deserve. Than any, yeah, but more than any other band, the Beatles certainly get that, don't they? Yeah, and it and it breaks down weirdly for me. I watched. I actually watched that a while ago, and then just very recently I saw that film yesterday, which yes. I, I assume you've seen. Yes. And, it, and it annoyed me at the time, and I couldn't work out why. I, I quite enjoyed the beginning, and then it just annoyed me. Mm. And I realised it was the choice of songs in it. You know, to oh. me, yesterday mm. is, is is in the movie. The key songs are yesterday, unsurprisingly, yeah. Yeah. and Let It Be, and the Long and Winding Road, and Hey Jude. The, those are the sort of key moments of the whole movie. And to yeah. me, those are the Beatles songs I just never want to hear again, ever. <laughs> you know, this sort of slightly more saccharine, yeah. melodic, mainstream. And and it, and it to me, it speaks a lot about the movie that that's the songs they go for. When they want to impress you yeah. by how yeah. great the Beatles are, it's yesterday. And to me, mm. I, never liked, I never liked that sort of stuff. That was the sort mm. of stuff that when you went to school in the music room, the teachers told you was brilliant. You know, right. mum and dad, my mum and dad uh, like the Beatles, my dad especially. Hmm. Um, he had uh, With the Beatles and the Beatles for Sale on vinyl. Oh, right. Yeah. So, you Did know, that... I grew up with them and that sort of uh, respect for them. Was that a positive thing, do you think? Did that encourage your Beatles listening or did it discourage Quite you the from. Opposite. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Quite the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I just kind of thought, God, I don't know, at some point, I think, I think the thing for me was. I knew we were in this era too, so you'll know probably exactly what I mean. You know, that mm. I got, when I discovered music, it was just after punk. And yeah. for whatever reason, I think the first artist I really got into was David Bowie, and then it was all the related Bowie stuff, like uh, Lou Reed, Mott the Hoopo, Wiggy Pop. So to me, that's a kind of weird inroad, if you like. Do you know yeah. what I mean? And it, it didn't come through my parents. It came through my sisters, my sister and her older, and her boyfriend. Yeah. Um, and so I had that sort of weird inroad, and then from that, immediately started listening to other 
Bowie-esque stuff of the early to mid-80s, which mm. was like alternative and indie stuff. And I was listening to John Peel and I started reading the music press. And I just picked up that idea that old music was rubbish. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, the, and the Beatles were maybe a part of that. You know, it was just like, mm. that's your dad's stuff. You don't listen yeah. to that, you know. Yeah, that time particularly. Yeah, I I agree. I remember at that time they were well out of favour, weren't they? It wasn't till the late eighties that they came back into a reference point for bands like REM and then later Oasis and bands like that that it became fashionable, if you like, or acceptable to like the Beatles again, didn't it? Yeah, and there was. I remember I loved Echo and the Bunnymen, and they were the first Mm. band I ever went to see, obviously from Liverpool. And on their Seven Seas single, they do a version of All You Need Is Love. Oh. And that was kind of, you know, and and hmm. there's many similarities between the orchestration of their music at that time and the Beatles and so on. So yeah. that started to make a little bit of sense to me. Yeah. And then I think, but I just think I never paid any attention to them, really. You yeah. know, it just seemed like the Beatles, and you probably hear this a lot, that, you, that people grew, who grew up with the Beatles, it's almost like nursery rhymes or folk songs yeah. or something. It's so mm. there yeah. that you don't find it as fascinating as some people seem to. And even as a teenager, I worked in a hotel um, as a waiter and, you know, I'd work weddings and dinner dances and stuff. And the bands would play the Beatles, you know, and, the, you know, the final song would be Hey Jude. And they'd play I Saw Her Standing There in the Middle. And, you know, you'd just, you know, and there'd be a, a couple of old fat guys, probably younger than I am now, <laughs> a couple <Yeah>. of old dudes <laughs> ripping through I Saw Her Standing There. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Which is a great, fantastic mm. song, you know, but... Um, yeah, well, it, so I'm I'm fascinated by your choice, um, and of course, uh, a massive appreciation for that song myself. But let, just a bit of factual information. So, I'm the Walrus was recorded in September 1967. In fact, just a f- couple of weeks after Brian Epstein died. So that's an yeah. interesting touch point. It was released as a B-side to the single Hello Goodbye on November the 24th, which means that it was the Christmas number one that year, which is intriguing. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was also released in the US at the same time. It appeared on the Magical Mystery Tour EP that was released on the 8th of December, which is a six-track double EP, and also the Magical Mystery Tour album, which is a controversial album for Beatles fanatics because many Beatles fanatics tell you it's not really an album. It was cobbled together in the US um, on November in November 1967, did very well there, and it was actually EMI's biggest import to the UK. Such was its success that in 1976, EMI released the album in the UK, and then in 1987 they released it on compact disc. And it's now kind of considered part of the canon, sitting between Sgt Pepper's and the White Album. Is this album, which is really a cobbling together of the EP singles and b-sides that weren't on other albums yeah so that's, that's interesting i never i never hmm. uh, knew that oh, I, I feel like subconsciously i knew that i knew it was the cobbling together but it's interesting hmm. that it wasn't released in sequence you know no. that it didn't in the uk it didn't go sergeant pepper's magical mystery tour white album yeah no that's that's really cool but, it's a great album i think it's really good i think so yeah well it and it pulls together some fantastic songs including of course strawberry fields and penny lane which had actually yeah. predated peppers but had never ended up on an album so um there's lots to say about this but i'm going to ask you first of all uh why why did you choose this one um what, what made you choose i am the walrus well for many of the reasons that we'll end up talking about i think i don't <laughs> really have a an easy answer but to me this is the when I say I don't like yesterday and mm. and let it be bores me yeah then there's this other side to the Beatles and I think this is the 
the Beatles at their best and most original. If I had to be mm. totally honest, I think my favourite Beatles song is A Day in the Life, but I'm being very generous yeah. and leaving that to one of your more esteemed <laughs> guests to tackle. Um, they don't get more I, esteemed than this, Scott. Ah, shut yeah. up. <laughs> uh, I think um, I'm the Walrus is just startlingly unique and original mm. and groundbreaking and stupid and funny yeah. and dark and it's just unlike anything else it's mad isn't it yeah yeah it's, <laughs> it's mad and also i just listened to it in headphones actually for the yeah i've listened to it in the, for a few times over the last few days but never mm. actually with headphones on or that loud and I, right god it's it's amazing really yeah. when you put headphones on yeah and and i think when going back to my sort of dislike and um disengagement with the Beatles. What changed it actually was when I went to university in Glasgow, I had a flatmate uh, across the hall from me who was Scottish uh, from up north somewhere in Scotland. I'm a lowlander near Glasgow. And um, and he was almost like a bit of a hippie. You know, he right. did smoke. He smoked ash. I've forgotten the guy's name. For God's sake, <laughs> terrible. But uh, all, he seemed to exclusively listen to Bob Dylan and the Beatles. Right. And not early Beatles. So the first time I heard I Am The Walrus properly was probably coming through his door. You know, I'd wake yeah. up Saturday morning and Day In The Life would be coming through his door, yeah. you know. That's mm. how I first really heard those uh, album yeah. records. That's a great context. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and that really changed the way I thought of it. He taped to me Abbey Road, uh, which is one of my favourite albums. Yeah, And actually taped it to fit it on the 45, the side of a, a C90. He mm. took off Maxwell's Silver Hammer. So for years, I thought it was the most perfect album ever made and was gutted when I bought it. And there was that <laughs> turkey right there, the third yeah. song or whatever it is. So, that's, so that's, the, that's how I got back into the Beatles and I became fascinated by them. My da- I always remember my dad saying, the Beatles were all right until they got on the drugs. <laughs> and then and then you hear this and you think, oh my God, you're so wrong. That's where they suddenly get really interested. And that's where it comes. Um, you know, and, um, and let's... You could be coy about it. Mm. It probably it was that it wasn't just the drugs. Let's put it that way. It wasn't just the drugs. And I think uh, I am the walrus. On the face of it, seems like the most druggy. I think it's actually at the end of Lennon's LSD period. Yeah, and he did say in an interview that he wrote it on LSD, and which is interesting because he he constantly denied that Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds was a reference to LSD because of the initial letters. Yeah. Uh, and I think we can believe him because when he did write a song on LSD, he was quite open about it. And this one, he said, <laughs> he, he was, uh, two acid trips in particular, he seems to recall, were the genesis of this song. Um, uh, just a little note on that. This is credited to Lennon McCartney, but in this case, it was 100% Lennon. There was um, no involvement from uh, McCartney in the in the conception. It is really a very strong John Lennon song, wouldn't you say, in terms of its feel? Yeah, it is. Um, the biggest other influence on it, I think, is George Martin. But if you mm. listen to it, I only listened to this recently. Uh, there's a demo version that's on Anthology 2. I yeah. think it's Take 16, and I think there were 25 takes. Yeah. Uh, and the Take 16 doesn't have Martin's strings on it. And George Martin apparently was like, oh, what am I going to do with this? <laughs> But what he does with it is just astonishing. It yeah, is, I mean, it? he should yeah. have the co-write, really, in a fair world. 
I, I always I always consider him the fifth Beatle when people have that conversation because he contributed so much to so many of their songs. But yeah, the, the orchestration on this, 16 instruments, including um, violins, cellos, bass clarinet, tr- uh, horns. It's just fantastic. Although listening to that, um, I don't know if you found this, but listening to the anthology version, you can hear the genesis of the string arrangement in John Lennon's piano chords. Which um, you can you can actually hear them at the beginning. And McCartney, in an interview, Paul McCartney said that um, John was very dictating to George Martin. He literally sang to right. him some of the parts. So I think there was a collaboration there. But as we know, none of the Beatles could score for for orchestra. So that was absolutely down to him. <laughs> somewhere that he also he, he brought in the backing singers whose name I forget yeah the Mike he coached Sands. them he coached them to you know they're not just singing straight backing vocals they do all that oompa loompa stick it over your jumper and all yeah, that that's and right. the ha 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 all that yeah he literally scored that stuff apparently yeah it's in the score which is amazing isn't it yeah, yeah the Mike Sam singers were MOR vocalists uh, who worked on things like the Benny Hill show and uh, you know, that week apparently they they worked with Kathy Kirby and the gang show so yeah eight male and eight female singers singing yeah laughing umpa umpa everybody's got one at the end adds another level to the surrealness of the song doesn't it yeah yeah it's chaos i mean you listen to it in <laughs> headphones and you can almost hear the sort of splices between the tape the different moods and but yeah. that to me makes it all the better it it doesn't never comes across as an organic um jam in the studio or something no you really feel like it's a composed you know using the studio as an instrument cutting and pasting and yes what did you make of the lyrics and the the kind of lyrical content did it wash over you did you did you focus in on any of it i mean it's it's a, a hodgepodge of images and sounds, really, isn't it? Rather than a, a cohesive lyric, but there is yeah. some background we can talk about there. But what did you make of it when you first heard it? I think your first impulse is to to be slightly intimidated by it. Maybe but mm. I think with I think Martin's strings are kind of queasy sounding, and the imagery yeah. is quite dark and weird. Yes, it is. But dark, also, it? it's it's got this sort of brilliant Englishness about it. I think where he's. Mm. Um, you know all that stupid, stupid bloody Tuesday. All that, all those sort yeah. of lines, I think, are really like a like a daft, yeah, um, seaside smutty postcard type thing. Do you know what I mean? You know, yeah, you, you've been a naughty girl. You let your knickers down. All that sort of. It's, it's not. He, he undercuts himself as, as he could come across as really pretentious, mm. but then those kind of daft references sort of make you realise it's playful, really. Absolutely, it's a yeah. song, isn't it? It's kind it of is. playful, but also it's nightmarish. And yeah. Um. <laughs> Yeah, Johnny Marr said it. it <laughs> it's his favourite Beatles song, by the way. So you're in good company. Johnny Marr, the, the guitarist of the Smiths and the electronic, amongst other things. Um, he said it was like a Hieronymus Bosch <laughs> painting. Yeah, that's a great show. Yeah. yeah, I think that's that kind of captures some of the, the quality of it. And 
quite distinct from the other kinds of psychedelia that were around at the time. So there was a bit of whimsy, even the Beatles earlier in Sgt. Pepper's with Lucy in the Sky and, and All You Need Is Love, of course. They'd done that whimsical side um, and the hippie side of, of that psychedelia. So as you say, it was on the tail end of that, after all that, that they came up with this rather dark vision. Well, it's the, it's the, it's the single after All You Need Is Love, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. right yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think I know that um, there's a brilliant book which is worth remembering. I don't know if you'll do uh, any uh, notes for this podcast or whatever. There's a great book called "Come Together: John oh. Lennon and His Time" by John, a guy called John Weiner, which is all about oh. Lennon's politics, really, and his relationship with the left and so on. Oh. Um, and he talks about a sort of mixed reaction to "All You Need Is Love." You know that radic- the people on the radical left. Yeah, the people who would be upset later by revolutions, count me in, count me out thing, but they yeah. were kind of suspicious of all you need is love. You know, it's kind of hippy dippy sentiment. You know, they were ready to take to the streets. You know, and yeah, uh, yeah, embrace the Black Power movement and build those kind of radical bridges. And mm. so I think Lenin was a little bit stung by that criticism, and I wonder yeah. if Walrus was. Um, a sort of reaction to that, that, that you know because compared to all you need is love it's tr- truly radical yeah the message yeah. isn't obvious i mean if there no. is a message no but yeah. um but yeah i, I think it's it's a I really agree. radical move after that sort of simplistic i love all you need is love actually it is one of my favorites but um yeah i, I can see lennon wanting to show that other side of his songwriting According to Pete Shotton, a friend of lennon's that they read a letter from a student at quarry bank their old school saying that um, their literature class was analysing Beatles songs and this absolutely tickled John Lennon and Pete Shotton to the point where he thought, I'm going to write something that they can't possibly make sense of, that's full of such diverse imagery that it'll be, I think he's, in his words, let the fuckers try and work that out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's great. Um, and that, that sort of um, accounts for the, 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 as you say, the kind of craziness of it, doesn't it? Do you think there's anything more to it than that, though, I wonder? Well, I just think, I don't know, I think there's, I, I wonder if it's, as you said, it came after Brian Epstein's death, you know, mm. a week or two after. And I do wonder if, you know, the, the refrain is, I'm crying. I do wonder yes. if it is an expression of grief, you know, that yeah. it's... Um, mm. That's it's in there, a, isn't it? Yeah, you really yeah. feel that line as well in the music. It's like a bad trip, isn't it? It's got that sort of yeah. nightmarish bad trip, uh, <laughs> disjointed, nightmarish images, the queasy sort of strings mm. and the, the way the yeah. music changes and throws you a little bit. Um, I, he also said that he was playing with words, which he always loved to do, back to his book um, In His Own Right and The Spaniard in the Works. And he, he was quoted later saying that Dylan got away with murder. <laughs> uh, and yep. he said, I thought I could write this crap too. And I, I presume he's talking about <laughs> stuff like Blonde on Blonde, you know, um, the jelly face, women all sneeze, you know, geez, yeah. I can't find my knees, all that kind of lyric that you get in that mid-period, mid-60s Dylan. Yeah, yeah, I think it is, absolutely. He's He's... He's playing with that sort of thing. But what's interesting, I think, is he's not cool with it. Not that I'm necessarily saying that Dylan was doing this, but, you know, Dylan mm. had was influenced by the beat writers, Kerouac and Ginsberg and so on. And, yeah. you know, he, he always had that sort of slightly uh, cool bebop 
related sort of yes. rhythm and imagery. Whereas Lennon's much like I say, he undercuts himself with the mm. "Light Your Knickers Down" and 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 those kind of phrases. Yeah, you know the what's the Semolina Pilcher climbing up the Eiffel Tower. Yes. You know, it's Elemental so Penguin is it another one? Yeah, stupid. It's yeah. so ridiculous <laughs> that you can't help but think he is. Yeah, it does add to it, actually, doesn't it? It makes, it, makes wonder, it all credible. I only learned today that Lenin was dyslexic, um, and I wonder if that oh, sort of added to it, you know, that he found yeah. language. Um, I read this in the in Albert Goldman's book, which I have and haven't actually ever read. I don't know if you've read it. but so, And he talks about uh, Lenin being dyslexic and... Mm. And maybe that sort of fascination with language, he had a fascination, that the dyslexia yeah. maybe aided him in a way that he had a fascination with language and portmanteaus and, and you know, just weird wordplay. And, and so, yeah, he know, actually that, invents that a few words in this. Users. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Crabber Locker and um, Snide and Textpert are words he's just come up with as, as just great sounding words and they work yeah. really well in it. It is interesting chord-wise. It is just as you said. It was crazy in terms of its visual imagery. It's crazy in terms of its chords because it's it's nominally in the key of A, but it borrows a lot of chords that are outside that key. Um, keys from the parallel minor, and I'm drawing here from some great work done by Dominic Pedler in his brilliant book, The Secrets, uh, Songwriting Secrets of the Beatles. But yeah, we've got the flat, flat third chord, the flat seventh chord, the flat sixth chord, and he actually makes the case, Dom. Dominic Pedler, that this is the kind of roots of rock, really. Those those chords that you get, and it's one of the reasons why I think this has been covered by rock bands, perhaps more than you might think. Certainly more than many psychedelic songs. Yeah, I mean, I can't talk with authority on that, but it sounds like it's, it yeah. sounds. And like I say, after I'm not saying all you need is love, isn't clever, but um, mm. after all you need is love, it just it's just a whole other world, doesn't it? It's just this. Yeah crazy kaleidoscopic yeah sound. I, you're right and actually all you need is love is more straightforward musically as well even though it does have the orchestrations um and even even things like the the chorus which builds to i am the eggman i am the walrus which ends on an e chord in a which normally you'd expect a chorus to land back on the tonic I'm going to leave it at that. I'm not going to go much further. The only one thing I will mention is people talk a lot in heavy metal circles, and I know I know you mix in those, Scott, <laughs> about <laughs> the the tritone um, interval. Yeah. You must have heard of this this um, yeah. sharpened fourth or flattened fifth, however you like to see it, which is known as the devil's interval. And that absolutely comes in here is um, on the, the Corporation T-shirt, "Stupid Bloody Tuesday" line, and its equivalent. That's an F moving to a B chord. Um, and all the chords are majors. That's another strange thing. So all these chords are borrowed from other um, parallel minors, but they're all major chords, which makes it very rock. <laughs> which right. is, I don't know if you've heard many cover versions, but Styx did a cover version. Oasis, Spooky yep. Tooth, and Spooky Bono, tooth, yeah. Frank Zappa. Uh, even I, I, I've discovered one while doing some research from this from a band called Grey Matter. Uh, I know nothing about Grey Matter. Have you ever heard of them? No. But no, they do I a don't. punk. They do a punk version of it, and it works right. really well as a punk song. Oh, no, really? And I think it's because they're all major chords, um, but they're all flying all over the place. Um, so it's interesting. It has a life um, musically before all of that other stuff that gets put onto it by the orchestration and the and the radio and stuff, isn't it? <laughs> 
the radio that comes in on uh, just before uh, the sitting in an English garden segment is actually John Lennon's at the desk and he's got Ringo tuning a radio. So again, the Beatles were involved at various points in this. Uh, and they end up, as as you'll know, on a, a performance of King Lear. So we hear that going on. King Lear, I thought, was interesting at the end. Yeah. It's the whole end section of Act 4, Scene 6 from King Lear, mm. where Oswald is killed by Edgar. And the most obvious bit is he says, oh, untimely death. Mm. Um, which, which, you know, again, a week or two after Brian Epstein's death, Seems like too much of a yes. coincidence for that. Just to, the story is, of course, that they just tuned the radio and got whatever I know, that, came up. That's, yeah, but come on, they just so happened to get something that was copyright free when they tuned the radio, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and it had that phrase in it. So, I, I, you know, but I think it's interesting. And what, yeah. one of the things I thought was interesting was that Lear itself or Shakespeare can seem like nonsense, mm. you know, or an intricate right. language that has to be mm. unpicked, you know. And as a school kid. Lennon, like all of us, probably sat in class thinking, "What? What is this?" Yeah. <laughs> and if you look at, and and this is the thing I was going to read out. So I've got this online here. So this is, if you look at the language in Act Four, Scene Six of King Lear, it mm. is mental. This is mm. Edgar sl- shortly before uh, the the bit. That I think I think it's the bit before mm. you can, that you can hear on "I Am the Walrus." Edgar says, "Good gentlemen, go your gate and let poor Volk pass." And Chud have been zaggered out of my life, twould not have been so long as tis by a vert night. Nay, come not near the old man, keep out Chivorye, or else try whether your custard or my ball will be the harder, chill plain with you. I mean, and That's then Oswald says, yeah. out dunghill. <laughs> yeah. Edgar, chill pick your teeth, sir, come no matter for your fines. You know, it's Fantastic. just insane, isn't it? And, it's, and was that know, the word custard I heard you say in there as well? Cost, he says custard, yeah, exactly. I looked yeah. that up. Um, Interesting. Whether you're yeah. custard or else try whether you're custard or my ball will be the harder, which apparently means let's find mm. out whether your head is harder than my walking stick. So custard was a, another name for a large mm. apple and used by Shakespeare quite a lot to mean head. He's actually got a That's character in that, and I think, Oh, I was going to say Midsummer Night's Dream. In one of his uh, other plays, there's a character called Custer who's very cerebral. So it was a interesting. Kinda... Yeah, that does see suddenly. So that's a great insight, Scott, because I'd always assume that was a happy accident. But you make a very strong case there that there's more to it than meets the eye in that in that um, bringing that in. I mean, we've all sat listening to teachers talk mm. about Shakespeare and his genius, and clearly was a genius. But mm. you know, for a, for someone in the 20th century or 21st century trying to read that is you need a whole load of notes to make sense of it, you know? And it's a bit like what we're doing now with I Am The Walrus. What does it all mean? What is this thing? Absolutely. That's a particularly wordy and inventive use of words, that passage you just quoted. Uh, Yeah, I think Edgar Hmm. uses the... He's he's supposed to be speaking in a weird language to disguise himself. He's undercover at that moment. Hmm. And so that's why it's particularly bizarre. It's interesting that later it came up as, uh, you know, maybe there was more to the lyrics than we thought, or, or unless Lennon was playing us, but in the song Glass Onion on the White Album, of course, 
He yeah. makes um, reference to a lot of previous Beatles songs. Um, and he says, uh, here's another clue for you all, the walrus was Paul. Yeah, well, as I understand that I am the walrus, is it the start of the whole Paul is dead thing? Or yeah, was it I, just later people went back to that? Yeah, said, that's, it wasn't the first one. There. Yeah, right. exactly. Because there's the dying, uh, you know, there's the reference to dying in the King Lear. In the King Lear thing. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I thought, I thought that was him just being... There's another song, I think one of his solo songs, and I wish I had it to hand now. Is it God? One of his solo mm -hmm. things in which he says, I was the walrus, but blah, blah, blah. Yes. Which seems yeah. to be a reference to his status in the Beatles. You know, I was in the Beatles, but now I'm doing this. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, so I think he's just playing around, doesn't he? Um, well, he said various different things. There's a difference things. to Lucy in the Sky as well, isn't there? So I like, yeah. I like that kind of interconnectedness of all the songs. But I think this might be the first song, actually, I'm the Walrus, where they do reference a previous song. Uh, uh, he does say Lucy in the Sky, doesn't he? Yeah, I think that might be the first. The listeners will let me know if not. But, yeah, he, he said at various times, um, at one point he said, it's just to confuse everybody a bit more. It could have been the fox terrier as Paul. It's just a bit of poetry. But then later he said, actually, it was I was feeling guilty. I was with Yoko and I was leaving Paul. Now, there's a lot of commentary amongst Beatles no. fans recently about the relationship with, between John and Paul, which um, I don't want to sort of uh, overstate the case, but there is a lot about their relationship that was like a marriage. <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's telling that when, when John decided to leave, he said to Paul, I want a divorce, for example. Um, but he said he, f he was feeling guilty in, it, in his perverse way of saying to Paul, you know, here, have a crumb, this illusion, this stroke, because I'm leaving. It's a funny one, isn't it? Because... What is the walrus, right? So that goes back to mm. the whole. So the, the story is that he misunderstood that it came from Lewis Carroll. Yes, and he, that's right. He misunderstood the poem that he didn't realise that he thought that he thought actually it was a symbol of the walrus was a symbol of socialism resisting the capitalist carpenter. But later he worked out that actually the walrus was also a bad guy. Yes. Uh, and so, but then mm. I think that that's a a too literal. Yes, uh, interpretation, and that's not really what, he's what he was probably interested in in the first place. I really like the mm -hmm. line. I think this is in the John Wiener book. He says it was probably what attracted them was it was the walrus signified the imagination, and then the poem, the yeah. walrus. It goes the the time has come. The walrus said to talk of many things, of shoes mm -hmm. and ships, of sealing wax, of cabbages and kings. And just throwing mm. all that shoes and ships and sealing wax, that sounds like I am the walrus, doesn't it? It sounds it like... It does, yeah. Yeah, it does. Time Absolutely. to talk of many things, you know. So uh, to been, me, yeah. the walrus is probably symbolising the imagination, the, the wilder limits of the imagination. And if he's saying that Paul uh, also mm. symbolises that, then that is a lovely sentiment. And I think mm. for all, I feel sometimes that uh, I don't want to fall down hard on Paul. I, don't, I, I prefer mm. Lennon's stuff. But I think it's yeah. too simplistic to dismiss uh, McCartney's uh, songwriting and influence. You know, his, his stuff is amazing, and he is so imaginative. You know, the oh yeah, the, yeah. the great, great lyrics he he and the scope of his writing is amazing, astonishing. 
Yeah, just to cap that off, Paul actually dressed as a walrus in the video to When We Was Fab, the George Harrison song that um, that was released after Lennon's death. And I, I wonder if he had any of that in mind at all or whether that was just a costume that was nearby. You know, it's, it's interesting to speculate. You're not alone in uh, choosing this song. I mentioned Johnny Marr. He says, when, when asked by Mojo in 2006, what's your favourite Beatles song? He said, it's got to be I'm the Walrus. As a record, it stands outside of pretty much everything. It's beyond its form, really. And, and what I think he, he said, uh, interesting is he says, it's, it's like an art object. I don't really think it's overstating it to say that eventually it could be looked on as an artefact as important as a Picasso. Interesting uh, statement, because uh, I think that... Yeah, and and a Picasso is a great shout as well, isn't it? You know, and that sort of thing when you maybe when you're a kid and you see Picasso and mm. it's slightly disturbing and it takes you a little bit to work it out. Mm, but, and also you don't have to work it out. And I think that's also that uh, until this week, I have never, I realised I've never really considered I am the walrus. Right. And when yeah. I said I was going to do this, I was slightly nervous about it because I like it as a piece, as a just an overwhelming thing yes <laughs> uh, yeah all together but to break it to analyze it i wasn't sure if there was anything to analyze if we really if i could um and, and so until now i'd never really broken it apart to work out what it meant or how it worked yeah it kind of resists it as well doesn't it um i mean i love breaking things apart musically and structurally yeah. and so on but at the end of the day the, the thing is a whole thing that works because it works and it's, it, it's that alchemy of all those elements that makes it work and breaking it down doesn't really add anything necessarily um it's just one of those things that i love doing um (laughs) and i've certainly got a lot from hearing some of the things you said another person interestingly just to talk about the scope of its influence if you like who rated it as uh, um one of their best songs is john anderson from yes (laughs) who in in the to he when he was talking to ticket to ride a a book about the beatles in 1989 said um it's a it's a heavy song um, there is a lack of attitude in the lyrics. And what I thought is interesting is he says that it's strong in John Lennon's direction, not so much in the Beatles' direction. It was his direction, uh, and that's what I am the, why I Am the Walrus is a classic. And that, that's uh, an interesting take on it as well. It's very Lennon, um, from purely from his kind of... He, he obviously identified with it at various points through his career later, and, and I think it, it really does stand as a representation of his art so this is where I sort of maybe reveal my lack of knowledge in terms of the Beatles. So when I think of Lennon and and the and, the, and that's just and this sort of strain of his songwriting, you know, tomorrow never knows is that Lennon? Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So tomorrow never knows. Strawberry Fields, Walrus. Yeah, those seem you know like like I say a startling new mm. sound. Um, that's, that's yeah. been very influential ever since. Whereas um, McCartney seems to me to belong to, at times, and like I say, I know he's got a huge breath to his writing, mm. but at times he seems to belong to an older school of songwriting, the Tin Pan Alley guys and yeah. those sort of classic brill building craftsmen, you know. Mm. Expert, expert, choking smokers, don't you think the joker laughs at you? <laughs> See how they smile like pigs in a sky. See how they I'm crying. Goldman suggests that Lennon sounds angry when he sings it, and it, right. uh, there could be a little bit of that. But I'm not really sure he's hit the nail on the head there. I don't. No. He sort of, you know, Lennon can always can always have that sort of scathing 
mm. sneering sort of sound to his voice. Yes, but, yes. Uh, but I don't know that I hear anger in it necessarily. No, I, I agree. And the sneering is interesting. There is a sneering tonal quality to it, which is definitely picked up in the Oasis version and the, the punk yeah. version by Grey Matter. Um, it's, it's sort of natural to his style of speaking. And it's part of that thing you were saying about undercutting the pretentiousness, isn't it? Um, yeah. There's something put downy about it. And that's, but, and that's why I wonder if maybe if it relates to Brian Epstein's death, you know, I think mm. cause you've got that sort of that crazy imagery, that sneering voice, and then you, you land at the end of the verse on I'm crying. Yeah, yeah, that's and the it, punch. And that could almost be, um, you know, like too much, too, too on the nose, a little bit right. sentimental maybe, but because of the, yeah. the, the world it's couched in, you know, you mm. don't, it doesn't come across like that at all. It would be interesting, wouldn't it? Because he's often talked about how he couldn't necessarily outright say he was feeling sad about something. Lennon often said that in interviews. Um, and so he would have grief like that. We, we can see how grieved he was. If you, I don't know if you've ever seen that bit of video of him at, with the Maharishi in Wales when he finds out about Brian Epstein's death. They all do it at the same time. No, it. Oh, it's, it's great. It's on the, um, I'm sure it's on YouTube and it's on the uh, um, anthology series but they they literally shove a camera in front of their faces the moment they find out so that you see their reaction and lennon is completely lost he looks he can't even talk he said i don't i don't know what i'm going to do and you know he looks very out of it and you can see and he's he's spoken about it afterwards isn't he how how much epstein meant to him so i I agree i think he wouldn't have been able to express that um he would need to bring in the kitchen sink to try and express that in song Uh, ian mcdonald i think in in the revolution revolution in our heads in their yes in the head yeah (laughs) he suggests that maybe mccartney let him encourage them to do i'm the walrus um Mm. as the next single you know the next recording just because it would give lennon something to do you know to take his mind off the grief and uh, and uh uncertainty i suppose having lost a manager what's the future of the group yeah let let john have a free reign and get him engaged again there is a that's a great that reminds me that book is a great book and uh, the the entry for i am the walrus is is really interesting because he sees it as a lot of political angles to it doesn't it putting down the establishment which was starting to bust people in in the um counterculture and so on which is an interesting take as well i never got that from it but i was interested that mcdonald's take on that did that ever strike you as part of the um yeah i think it's part of it i think that's that um i i wonder about the whole school thing i think it's interesting that 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 quote that they got had the letter from a from someone who went to the same school as them saying that they were studying his lyrics and that's and mm. maybe that sort of working class chip in his shoulder mm. you know the rage he felt about not being appreciated at school being misunderstood being dyslexic that yeah. maybe that sort of funnels into i am the walrus and it's just a general mm. sneer at the establishment yeah. <laughs> yeah it said that when he wrote it he was playing around the piano and a police siren went by and he yeah. started singing along to the police siren You can see how you might have picked that up in the lyric, can't you? Um, Row of policemen. Yeah, I am he as you are, mm. he as you are. Yeah, it's got that sort of rhythm of a... Mm. That sort so of cycle I, of a... But yeah, the, what I read was, um, and I'm forgotten where now, sorry, I would like to credit whoever it was, 
that, it, that actually the line's very similar to a line from a song called Marching to Pretoria, which was mm. a folk song from the Boer War. And it was kind of made famous by the Weavers, an American folk band who, who mm. recorded a version of it on a live album, live from Carnegie Hall, which came out in 63, I think. And I don't think it's hard to imagine that Lennon uh, might be aware of it, either from from the Weavers or from other uh, people singing it at the time. But the lyrics on it, uh, mm. well, there's there's a few, actually. I, I checked out the lyrics online. Yeah. Uh, and someone quotes it as, that it says, I, I'm with you and you're with me and we are all together. Oh, well, that uh, sounds... The, yeah, yeah, the Weavers actually play, uh, sing with me, I'll sing with you and we'll all sing together. And there's right. another version which which is I'll drink with you, you drink with me, and we'll all drink together. Interesting. So, you know, it just yeah. feels like that could have been in the ether and that was the... It feels like it must have been, yeah. A melody that you could easily have sort of... Sung along to that note, those notes. To, yeah. yeah. Yeah, you can almost feel yourself in his head creating that. The Eggman story, what have you heard? I've heard an Eggman story. The <laughs> it's Eggman quite salacious. Story, well, yeah. Th- yeah, the Eggman story is, well, it depends how explicit you want to get. <laughs> thing. So the... It's, it's sort of been mistalked about in lots of places. The Eggman was Eric Burden, of the singer of The Animals, a later of War and Solo. Um, mm. And the story was that Lennon went to an orgy in 1966 with him and yeah. discovered that Burden liked cracking eggs over women. Uh, but Burden right. himself cleared that up in his autobiography. He said that um, <laughs> at one point he was making, he was cooking a breakfast naked in just his socks. Right. And he had a Jamaican girlfriend who came up behind him, cracked an amyl nitrate capsule under his nose. <laughs> <laughs> he, overcome with the fumes, Eric Burden fainted, slid to the floor, where right. semi-conscious his girlfriend cracked an egg over him and on his privates, let's say, and scrambled wow. him, basically, <laughs> while he was lying there. And that ever since, he had this thing about eggs and sex. Yeah, now, and, and I haven't got the source here, but I remember similar stories and there was apparently Lennon was at a party and he'd heard this story and he was he was shouting at Eric Burden, come on, Eggman, come on. Um, <laughs> and he actually literally called him the Eggman because of this story. Yeah, so, apparently his friends used to call him Eggs. You know, and like I say, apparently right. in his autobiography, I've only read an extract from it, but apparently he's quite open about it. And... Yeah, that's great. That's a great point. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Google oh, Tube yes. is the other thing I've got. <laughs> well, Google Tube is just mental. I always said to my wife, you know, and I'll give you this to you, Tim, and your listeners. You want to win the Turner Prize. Make I was going to make a life-size model of a man, made out of scrambled egg, fried eggs for eyes, <laughs> and call it Google Tube. That's going to win the Turner Prize. Come on. It is. You can have that. The rest the um, rest can just drop away because that's winning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Google Tube is just bizarre, isn't it? And there's, mm. there's been this sort of... Simon and Garfunkel came out with Mrs. Robinson, which has Cuckoo Kachu, Mrs. Robinson. Right, yeah. Uh, at the same time. So uh, Mrs. Robinson, there, there was uh, this conversation about did, did Lennon nick it from Simon Garfunkel? Simon Garfunkel did, did Paul Simon nick it? Yeah. Uh, it's got to be a tribute to Lennon, by Paul Simon, if it's intended at all, because Mrs. Robinson oh. came out later. Ah, interesting. And, yeah. and was never heard, so Lennon could not have written it 
well, no one knows how he could have heard it anyway. It was in the, the movie The Graduate, but that didn't come out in December, until December 67. Yeah. And it wasn't in, in record until 68. So the scholars, the Beatles scholars, seem to think it's more likely to have been Betty Boop. Ah. Boo Boop a Doop. Oh, right, yeah. Boo Boop Dee Doop, if yeah, Marlon, yeah. Marlon Monroe's version. Um, and there's a whole nice passage in one of these books, and I've forgotten which one. Um, oh, no, it's a brilliant article I read. I really recommend this. There's a great article on the Atlantic. Um, oh, yeah. Let's see if I've still got it open on my desktop. Yes, I do. Brilliant article in the Atlantic called The Delights of Parsing the Beatles' Most Nonsensical Song by a guy called Ben Zimmer. I could give you the link if you want to include it. In yes, it. please. Yeah, I will. I'll put it but in the show notes. It's yeah. a really long, satisfying read where he sort of pulls apart all the, the nonsense of the song, and yeah. including a story about where Boo Boo. Uh, Boo Boop a Doop came from in the first place. There was a court case about it and all this kind of stuff. So it's really fascinating. Good, but yeah, good I think tube. It's a lovely sound, isn't it? It feels yeah, right in the tube. mouth. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's even like, you know, the people who pay attention to these things. Apparently, officially, it was written as Goo Goo Gajub. Right. And it's kind of been shortened over the years to Goo Goo Gajub because there's, yeah. you don't get the A sound. Um, but yeah, I think it's probably. You know, when you think of Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe saying boo boo beep doop, yeah, that kind of yeah. rhythm kind of makes sense, doesn't it? It does. And um, I, I meant to mention this anyway, but um, I can't hear that line without seeing the wonderful sequence, which we haven't mentioned yet, in Magical Mystery Tour movie of them playing I Am The Walrus, which is, I think, I mean, Paul McCartney says on the anthology, he gets a lot of criticism for that movie, which was panned at the time. Uh, have you ever? You must have seen Magical Mystery Tour, have you? It's it's a think, similar hodgepodge of imagery and plot, and it, do, yeah, it doesn't. Yeah, I think work. I've seen it, but I can't honestly remember it. And I tried to get it on YouTube, and the Beatles have mm. taken it down. Yeah, <laughs> uh, which is a shame. You've got to actually but, buy it. Yeah, and it, it, do, it you know it's famously you know the the plot for it is is nonsensical, and it, it's a it's a mess. But Paul McCartney always says he defends it on the fact that it's the only place you can see that performance of I'm the Walrus, and it is great. And um, one of the things I was going to say is that Lennon's face when he sings Goo 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 Jube, he sort of pulls this kind of face that, uh, and you realise he's having a lot of fun. And it, what we said earlier about how it may have been related to his grief that might, or and it may be related to anger, what comes across in the visual performance on the magic is, is just how much fun he's having playing yeah. with words and imagery and taking the piss and singing Goo 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 Jube and having an egg... A sort of bald-headed wig on. It's yeah. it's a joy to watch, actually. Yeah. He's like you know. I know he was. Uh, he knew Spike Milligan was and he was was into mm. all that sort of stuff. It's very sort of Spike Milligan gun show. Yeah, Monty uh, Python esque as well, Monty predating that. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. I mean, I, I don't know about you, but I feel I could say so much more about it. Any honourable mentions you want to make to other Beatles songs that you could have chosen and talked about in brief? Yeah, I think, as I said, A Day in the Life, I think, is the... Well, I switched between A Day in the Life and Strawberry Fields as my favourite. I was thinking mm. about talking about Revolution because I think because I love it and because it's mm. very rock and roll and I love yeah. the uh, politics of it, or the yeah. discussion around the politics of it. Um 
So yeah, I think yeah. that's one of the, and and as you will know, one of the criticisms I have of the the Beatles is that they don't especially rock hard enough. Yes, we've had often. this. Concept, and I think that's yeah. because their uh, career didn't last long enough, to be honest. But um, but you know, Revolution yeah. rocks. So there's, there's quite a few, and the B side. I mean, the entire B side of Abbey Road is one of my favourite bits of music ever. So yeah, yeah, there's so many songs I could choose. No, absolutely. Sometimes I feel like a Beatles cynic, but you know, when push comes to shove, they've they've actually uh... got something to give. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit, you know. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much for that, um, Scott. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, and um, yeah, thanks for spending time talking about I'm the Walrus. No uh, is there any any way that you could let us know or let listeners know how they could either follow you? Is there anything you want to promote or anything to talk about before we well, say they... goodbye? Podcast-wise, we do the Classic Rock does a podcast called the Twenty Million Club. Uh, we've done a yes. sort of a short first season of maybe seven episodes. It's all about the best-selling albums of all time, albums that have sold twenty million and above. Mm. Um, so yeah, please check that out. There's another series coming in the next few weeks. I think the first episode will go live. Great, um, I highly recommend that. Um, thank yeah, you. fantastic. Good to hear it. And uh, anywhere online that you can be found? Do you have a blog or a website or anything? No, no I mean, I, I'm in charge of uh, multiple websites and stuff, so I would recommend checking out Louder if you like rock music, heavy metal, mm. prog rock, uh, yeah. alternative music. That's the home of that. And in terms of uh, music making, we, uh, we have Guitar World, the biggest guitar playing website in the world, and mu uh, Music Radar, yeah. um, which is the biggest site for musicians. All good resources if you're into that. Well, thanks very much again, and uh, that was great.